Lord spoke to me this morning from the 10th chapter of Daniel. It's one of the more remarkable passages in the Bible, but Daniel is troubled at the extension of the exile in Babylon, and he's seeking God. And he commits himself to a kind of fast for three weeks. And I believe it was on the 21st day that he's down by the river. It may have been the Tigris. And he has this incredible vision. And he says that he sees this, this, this image, this visitation, this vision of God, of God's messengers to him. But he says that those who were with him did not perceive it but they did become terrified and fled. He also became terrified and he repeatedly said that he lost his strength and his breath from him. The 19th verse says what the angel, he says it was a messenger who looked like a man, spoke to him. And that's what really stuck out to me this morning while reading the passage. The angel says to Daniel, do not be afraid, you are highly precious. Peace be with you. Be strong. Be very strong. And then Daniel says, as he spoke with me, I was strengthened. And I said to him, speak, my Lord, for you have strengthened me. Amen. And the line that emerged for me was just that as he spoke with me I was strengthened that's our aspiration today God as you speak to us give us power the word of God is living and powerful it's not a hard substance that you bump up against it's a spiritual substance that can go right into the deepest place of your need it knows no barriers, no walls. Nothing can stop it except our pride. If we can greet it with faith, it can have its way. I come today with three kind of distinct burdens, uh, three, three thoughts, and they may seem disconnected, but I think they're not. And I hope that I can process through these with as much efficiency as possible. Not for efficiency's sake, but so that we can retain it and I won't overflow your, your bucket. Brother Dylan has already spoken to us this morning about the battle with self-pity and feeling low. I think that that's not an unfamiliar battle to many. I think that that's one of the most widespread ailments of our time is depression. And I felt like the Lord gave us a little insight this week, and I've shared it in a couple smaller settings, but I want to unpack it today, hopefully with a little more context. Somebody said to me once that they didn't feel depressed until... God made them more responsible, I'm paraphrasing. Prior to being responsible as an adolescent, they never felt this battle 
with feeling low, with feeling depressed, with feeling self-pity, however you want to call it. It's not always just self-pity. It can, it can just be like a heavy weight on our shoulders. And I felt like that, that statement itself started to shine some light on the nature of the battle. I feel like a lot of times we sense that we have been given a task that is beyond our ability. And a sense of inability leads to a sense of depression or anxiety or anger. But it's, it's an inability. It's, it's a feeling that I'm being asked to do something that I lack the tools to do that funnels me into this place of either depression, anger, or anxiety. and Maybe it's anxiety, depression, or anger in that order. And I think whether you choose one of those last three is largely up to your personality. It's not really even a choice. It's just a manifestation of your genetic makeup. Some people feel cornered and incapacitated and, and they respond in anger. Others feel cornered and incapacitated and they respond in anxiety and others respond in depression. But it's incapacity, it's perceived incapacity that is almost always the antecedent to this battle. And that begs the question of, are we really incapacitated? And if so, then who's to blame? You know, there are scriptures that come to mind, my God shall provide all your needs according to his riches in store. I will never leave you or forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because he's with me. You are with me. And these scriptures would seem to broadly promise that we don't have to feel cornered in our incapacities. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. But as I've already quoted, Paul said to the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And what do we call this, this force in our lives that enables us, whether powerfully or subtly, loud or nuanced, what is this force at work in the church, at work in the believer's life, that enables him. What do we call this force? Somebody said the spirit and others said grace. Well, it's called the spirit of grace. Modern Christianity has turned grace into a license, a permit that exempts us from something important or dangerous. But the Bible speaks of grace as an enabling power as the difference between incapacity and obedience. So we have scriptures like Paul saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. What is the evidence that God's grace was not vain or useless in Paul's life? For I worked harder than you all, but it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. This itself destroys the dichotomy between grace and works. 
showing that there are works that we do in our own strength, but then there are works we do by the grace of God. And that's really all, the only works that matter, the works which he has prepared beforehand, before the foundation of the world that we should walk in. The works about which we can rightly say, it is not I. It is not I. Don't blame it on me. Don't credit me. It is not I. Those are the works wherein we have nothing to boast. Those are the works of grace, and grace works. It really works. I think of Joseph, and I'm going to come back to this in a little bit, but in, in Genesis 41, 16, Joseph says, after he's been betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery and betrayed again and consigned to prison and betrayed again and forgotten by those whom he helped in prison, at last, his grand opportunity, he stands before Pharaoh and his gifts have made room for him. There's a dream that only he can interpret. So Pharaoh comes, Pharaoh meets Joseph after he's had a shave and a haircut and a, a bath and, and he says, I've heard that you can do great things. My paraphrase. And Joseph responds in verse 16 of 41. He says, I myself can do nothing. That's what he's learned over approximately 13 years of betrayal, neglect, anguish, privation, isolation, hardship, and crisis. He says, I myself can do nothing, but God will give Pharaoh a sound answer. Paul says to the Corinthians in the third chapter of his first epistle, by the grace that God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. Paul calls himself an expert builder, but it's all predicated on this movement, this unction, this enabling, empowering grace. What's the first time the word grace appears in the Bible? that I'm aware of or that it is translated into English is in Genesis. It's talking about the condition of the world. It's full of violence. Every man does what is right in his own eyes and the Lord looks on the earth and is sorry that he made man, right? Genesis 6. He says because man's whole motivation is only toward evil. But then there's this, this change. There's this pivot all of history hinges on this one phrase and it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't sit back and said, ah, honey, I got grace. Let's go back to sleep. He said, I got grace. Let's build an ark. I got grace. Let's keep at it for 120 years if that's what it takes. But I have found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Salvation is afoot. So grace is a powerful thing. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has given me strength. That is dunamis. It's the same word Jesus used when he said, wait in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. He has given me strength to do his work. 
He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him. He goes on and he says that he has been made a steward of God's grace. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10 that we have become stewards of God's grace. We talk about monetary stewardship. What about grace stewardship? Every time God starts to move and there is power moving in hearts and minds are changing and doors are opening and enabling grace is at work, we are going to be accountable. We are going to give an answer to how we invested not that money but that grace. How we multiplied that grace. How we ministered the grace of God in its various forms. Noah found grace, but we see what he did with that grace. As Peter says, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is according to faith. No, that's Paul. Peter says he saved the world. 1 Peter 3.21 So why do we feel helpless? Well, Grace has conditions. There's only a certain posture of heart that can activate and appreciate grace. What is that posture of heart? We all know it, don't we? Spoken of in Proverbs 3.34, James 4.6, 1 Peter 5.5. What does he say? God gives grace to the humble, which is an insight into Noah. The first guy who found grace. He's a brilliant man. He's a diligent man. He's a successful man, but he's a humble man. God gives grace to the humble. So it's like God is looking at his people, wanting to hand out not a thousand dollars, but so much more in the form of enabling power that can bridge the difference between a command. And the ability to fulfill it. So, let me give you three reasons why we may feel powerless even though grace is available. You say, oh, but maybe grace isn't available. Oh, I think it is. What does he say in Titus 2.11? The grace of God that brings salvation has showed up, has appeared, has manifested itself to a select few. No, to all men. The next word he uses is a verb, teaching. But that word is paideo, so it really should be translated discipling, training, and equipping us to say no to ungodliness, to deny worldly pleasures, and to live sensibly and godly in this present age. Again, grace is something that is giving us this verb capacity, this discipling that takes us out of our immaturity, out of our fruitlessness, out of our brokenness, and into the will of God. The grace of God has appeared to everybody. So there are three reasons that I would propose for why we might not get or avail ourselves of the grace that's available. <laughs> Amen? We haven't humbled ourselves. We've redefined humility according to ourselves, and we, we don't know what real humility looks like. We spoke some about that last week, humbled himself by becoming obedient, right? Right? So that's the first place to look. God, do I know what it means to humble myself? We're trying to remedy depression. Humble yourself. 
It's ironic, but it's true. Because oftentimes, anxiety that leads to depression is tied to pride. That's why Peter said, humble yourself, casting all your anxieties on the Lord, for he cares for you. What is anxiety? Oftentimes, it's the panic of feeling that we're losing control over things God never had us to control. It's a um, control freak feeling that it's failing. What a gift. One, we should humble ourselves. Two, if we have humbled ourselves and received grace but still feel powerless, it's because we have accustomed ourselves to responding in the moment but neglecting the perseverance that would activate this as a life change. We know how to neglect grace. I think of what, what it says in Job 33. Indeed, God speaks once, maybe twice, yet no one notices it. What is he saying? There's a neglect. That's what Brother Leslie was speaking about, right? Also, you think of what he says in, um, to Timothy do not neglect the spiritual gifts that lie within you through the laying on of hands and the prophetic word. Somebody says, well, he's talking about when Timothy was installed. I agree with that. But have spiritual gifts ever been put inside of you through a prophetic word? Do you know it's possible to neglect those gifts? Do you know it's possible to neglect something powerful that God put in your hands because you're a steward of it? Thank you, Jesus. Don't let us, Lord. Why do we neglect it? Because we learn to treat the word of God like the word of man. We forget that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. We forget that all flesh is as grass and all its glory is the flower of the field. And the grass withers and the flower fades. But there's something that will endure forever and that's the word of the Lord. David says the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The purposes of his heart endure for all generations. Don't treat God's answer like man's solution. It's different. That's what Peter was saying when he said, I've been trying to fish this spot all night, yet at your word I will cast it in again. Because everything changes when God begins to speak. Amen. While he was speaking, I was strengthened. God, let us be strengthened by your word today. Thank you, Jesus. Many, O oh Lord, my God, are the wonders you have done and the plans you have for us. None can compare to you. If I proclaim and declare them, they are more than I can count. The third reason is we're unwilling to deploy consequences. You might just say we're unwilling to turn belief into action. This may be in discipling somebody. This may be in changing our own life. Jesus made belief concrete when he did things like put mud on people's eyes just to create a scenario where they had to go physically wash it off. Where he told them to go show the priest something when as yet there was nothing to show. Everything changes when faith goes from being an inert, static thing in your head and heart and becomes a living and active thing and you get up and start doing it. When the, when the paralytic was lowered through the roof, it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto them. So faith that remains invisible is faith without works, which is corpse faith, inert faith. It's dead faith. It's not faith. It's not going to have the same effect. 
Faith has got to turn into action. And sometimes that's deploying a measure that God has told us to against our own flesh or it's deploying a solution that he has given us in a situation where we're responsible. The Bible warns about that. It says in Jeremiah, it says, a curse is on anyone who is lax in doing God's work. A curse is on anyone who keeps their sword from bloodshed. This is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And he said there's a curse on anybody who's not willing to do what it takes. So there's got to be a willingness in us to do and not just to believe. Remember the, when I've talked about God, please weed my garden? You know, there's, there's, a, there's a willingness, a proclivity, and oftentimes in our hearts where we want to beg God to do what He's told us to do. Because then we look pious and pitiful when He doesn't do it. And we are such a praying saint. You know. But you can say, God, please love my wife, and he's not going to love her for you. You're going to need to get up and love her. God, please train my children. Oh, I just trust you, Jesus, to train my children. It's not going to happen. That's like saying, God, please weed my garden. There are things that you still have to do. He's going to give you the unction. He's going to give you the enablement. But you've got to get up and do it. And scripture shows us that oftentimes we don't even feel the empowerment until we set in motion the obedience. We have to start obeying before we have the power to do what we're attempting. It says that when Saul turned to go, God gave him a new heart. It says that when the priests put their foot in the water, the waters parted. Jesus told the paralytic, get up and walk. And the very nature of his condition is he couldn't get up, much less walk. But in obeying the impossible, that's how we start to avail ourselves of the grace that is waiting for those who would humble themselves by becoming obedient in this manner. Strengthen us, Lord, with your word. Strengthen us with your word. Change us, Lord. Rearrange our thinking. Break down old barriers and strongholds in Jesus' name. So God does not reap where he has not sown. And he does not gather where he scatters no seed. If he's reaching for something, it's only the multiplication of what he's already given. If he's wanting some fruit, he's only looking to make sure you're a steward of the seeds he's planted. Powerlessness is something we need to take responsibility for, not feel pitiful about. God forgive me for being powerless. God, forgive me for the three ways that I have made myself powerless. My unwillingness to humble myself. My proclivity to treat your solutions as man's solutions. And my unwillingness to turn my faith into action. Paul says, I ask that out of the riches of God's glory, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. God, strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner man. The weakness is inside of us. The weakness is a faithlessness. A faithless man becomes a depressed man or an angry man because he's thrashing against demands that God has placed that he thinks he cannot fulfill. Paul also said, we also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so you will have 
all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy. But what, okay, now here's pivot one. What is the power? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? What does it look like? What is the power that God is giving us? In Luke 10, he says, Behold, I give you authority over all the power of the evil one. Isn't that the grace we're seeking? But what is that like? How do I know I'm moving in the power of God and not merely the bravado or the make-believe or the strength of man? The flesh profits nothing. Is this the strength of man that I'm moving in? I speak to fathers and leaders, and how do we know? There's more than one kind of power in the world, isn't there? There's more than one kind of authority in the world, isn't there? Oftentimes I see fathers who, who confuse the kind of authority that God has and would give them. And because they don't see that their command flows from relationship, they start thinking their command flows from their own strength. Why do I say that their command flows from relationship? In the podcast yesterday, I said that fatherhood has three things that most define it. To lead or command, to provide, and to love. But what is the scripture that ties command to relationship? What did the Lord say about Abraham? Abraham, have I known, that's a relationship, why? That he might command his children after him in righteousness. So the correct kind of authority, the correct kind of consequences and training and discipleship has got to come from a relationship with God. Abraham might be able to command his children if he's got this relationship. But it doesn't, the authority does not reside in him by virtue of the fact of his masculinity. The authority rests upon him by virtue of the fact that he is connected with the one from whom all wisdom and truth and love flow. The wrong kind of authority is backed by force and the correct kind of authority is backed by the compulsion of truth and love alone. So the wrong kind of authority is secretly intimidated, faithless. God's asked me to be a father, but how do I do this? It doesn't go to that lower place. It doesn't say with Paul, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling, so that your faith wouldn't rest in man, but in the power of God. Paul's implying that he's afraid. Had he not been weak, they would have learned to trust his strength. He was the man that might have made them have faith in the strength of man. But he abdicated that place and took a lowly place so that their faith would rest in the power of God who gives life to the dead and calls those things that are not as though they were. A father who is insecure in his authority does not remember where it comes from. And he's afraid lest they see his weakness or his need. But scripture shows weakness and need in, in leaders and fathers because 
Perfection isn't his prerogative. And masculine bravado isn't his prerogative. Relationship with God is his prerogative. I want God to turn a key in your heart that just makes it all seem more possible today. Somebody says, I have a hard time. I, when I contemplate having a conversation with someone under me, I feel this tenderness and I feel this love and I imagine how the conversation will go. But when I actually sit down, I find it very hard even to open my heart. I just feel aggravated. That's because your flesh is competing with their flesh. Your he-man is competing with their he-man. And you don't understand where your strength and authority comes from. You've got to lay down that counterfeit authority that is rooted in insecurity. That counterfeit authority is times full, not just love. But that kind of authority is going to be proven to be times full. Age is going to diminish and shrink that authority. But the authority of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords started it all out by hanging naked on a cross just after wrapping a towel around his waist and washing their feet. Don't be afraid to face the fact of your inferiority complex because you can repent of your pride. You can view God's word differently. You can activate your faith and you can see grace start to accomplish what man in all his plans and strength has utterly failed at. Ungodly authority postures. It strikes tones and it has violent or brash things to say because secretly it's terrified. Its hands are cold and it's in a cold sweat because it's terrified somebody's going to discover that it's all just a paper tiger. This is your father speaking. But there is an authority that runs deeper. I am laboring in birth pangs again so that Christ would be formed in you. There is a trust that transcends. God, I can do nothing apart from you, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Oh, God, help us to repent of the counterfeits, of all the mannerisms, all the paper tigers, all the pretenses. God, help us to repent of it and believe that if we come to know and love and trust you, then we're going to have the ability to bring whatever command is godly in our lives. Ephesians 6 and 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not exasperate them to the point of resentment with demands that are trivial or unreasonable or humiliating or abusive, not by showing favoritism or indifference to any of them, but bring them up tenderly with loving kindness in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What is your model of authority? A king naked on a cross? Or the he-man competing with another teenage he-man? There's nothing incompatible. Godly weakness, weeping, tenderness is compatible with godly authority because it's merely the sloughing off of all the counterfeits so that the pure love of God can shine through. Oh, I'm not saying that you're not supposed to be decisive. 
I looked to my own father and he was a paragon of sweet, gentle love to all of us. Those who were his children or grandchildren know that. And yet I also remember him being decisive. I remember him telling an intractable, rebellious sibling, pack your bags, you have one hour to be out of this house. That was not an expression of his he-man over the other, over the teenager's he-man. That was an expression of consequence that acknowledges life does have consequences or else it wouldn't end in heaven or hell. And that broke his heart. I also remember the tears after his departure. And I also remember 10 months later when that same son repented. He came to the back door at midnight and on the back door was a, was a yellow sticky note with a greeting from, from dad. I'm so glad you're home. I love you so much, son. You've made me so proud. And he opened the door and right in front of him on the hall wall was two more sticky notes. And he turned and all the way down the hall was more sticky notes. And on the door to his bedroom, more notes. You're going to make it this time. You did, you honored God. And we can have love without consequences and that dishonors God and denies that our love comes from him and we can have consequences without love and that posits authority in the strength of the flesh and that is a, an authority that's going to dissolve and vanish oh they'll respect you as long as you can control them but your control is, is vanishing every day what's going to hold them nothing but the love of God nothing but the love of You see, the honor of God and the order of the church is not time's fool. It's time's gold. It doesn't, it doesn't fail with time. It doesn't break apart. It doesn't dissolve. If that were the case, then Jacob would have been most powerful and influential when he was just deceiving and conniving and relying on his own flesh to get his promise. But that's not where we see Jacob at the pinnacle of his usefulness to God. Thank you, Jesus. That's just not where we see it, is it? Let's go to the um, Genesis. I believe it's 48. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to see you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in bed. Here is an image of a man whose condition is such that he has to collect his strength to merely sit up in bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of people. And you will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you are mine. He's saying, I'm going to take these grandkids and make them as sons. 
Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are mine. But your offspring that you have born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Here's another insight into his condition. He's about to bless the two boys he's talked about that he's just mentioned, but when he sees them, he says, Who are these? He doesn't have great eyesight. He may not have great memory. You live in a culture where honor is according to function. But that's not the culture of the Bible. That was a culture where the order was according to honor. And that's the culture that we have here. Older brothers and sisters, don't denigrate the role that you have in your wisdom years. Don't belittle the function that you still retain. Yes, there was a time when you were raising children and now you have grandchildren, spiritual or otherwise. Ask Brother Abraham, my other siblings, we discipline our own children. We are responsible for their behavior. But ask them how they honor my dad and mother. Was that honor less? No, it was greater. So God may be bringing adjustments, but it's an adjustment to disentangle you to a greater purpose, to a greater role than you've ever fulfilled yet. My dad pulled back from management of the church in 2003, and that was an increasing thing throughout his sunset years until he was bedridden. But as his management diminished, did his honor diminish? Did his influence diminish? Did the grace of God coming through him diminish? Oh, to the opposite. When I am weak, then I am strong. There was a pure form of strength that was to be offered that could not have been offered in those earlier times. So that sloughing off that begins with all of us now as we have our first children or we take our first steps into leadership, that sloughing off of all the crutches of He-Man images and the strength of man, that just continues. But it's not to destroy the authority and the honor that God gave to you. It's to destroy everything that prevents it, everything that pollutes it, so that the pure wisdom and light of God's word can shine brighter through you. David says, I was young, but I am old now. Where does he say that? So I'm not going to write any more psalms? No, he says that right in the middle of his greatest works. We don't know what he did when he was young, but what he did when he was old is write a book in the Bible, <laughs> in large part. The influence that my father played with our children. Ask Helen where she would be without that. 
or ask Blair Joel. Okay, it wasn't the same as what their dads were playing in their life. But don't diminish it. We won't survive as an alternative culture without it. Wisdom is with the aged and understanding with length of years. We will rise before the gray head and call them blessed. Jacob goes on and he blesses Joseph's sons and and he places his hands like this so that his right hand is on the younger and his left on the older. And again, Joseph is aware of his father's condition. He doesn't even know who the grandkids are without Joseph telling him. So Joseph says, it says that Joseph grasped the hands of Jacob to switch them back and said, No, my father. But his father said, I know. And I will do it this way. The blessing that shaped the rest of history was given by a man who had to gather his strength to even sit up in bed. The blessing that opened the door and paved the way for the righteous from then until now, including the exodus and the coming of Messiah, was spoken by a man who didn't recognize his grandsons when they walked in the room. We do not dishonor you. We see a role that you play now that is greater than any you've played yet. We see a strength being perfected, not of the flesh, but of God. And when Jacob was done, it said he lifted his legs into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his fathers, to his people. I hope you see the theme that I'm still continuing here. I just want to read a couple scriptures. Psalm 71, do not discard me in my old age and do not forsake me when my strength fails. Your strength is not what cleaves you to the side of Jesus. It is your faith. And as your strength diminishes, your faith increases. Let it be. When I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, until I proclaim your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. Building buildings. Oh, that's been done by evil men. Executive organization. Oh, that's, that's accomplished by those who've never met Christ. Leading. Oh, that's been done by generals. Both to destroy and to deliver. But becoming a conduit of grace. Proclaiming your wisdom to the next generation. That can only be done by those who will be weak in the flesh so that they might be strong in the spirit. Don't discard me when I'm old until I proclaim. That's the role that God's called you to. And that's the role we honor you for as watchmen, as seers. I know and my siblings can say the same. My parents see things in our children and in our parenting that we don't see. Well, it's the same in the church. Sometimes 
Our children would just go and sit with them and talk with them. What would they ever trade for those conversations with granddaddy? Your role is not in what you do. It's who you are. Your role is not in what you do that everybody else can do. It's in the grace that you give. It's in the wisdom that you transmit. When I am old and gray, do not forsake me, Lord, until I proclaim your power to the next generation. Third generation brothers and sisters, connect with the older brothers. If you don't have a grandparent in the church, find one. And if you don't have a grandson in the church, you've got hundreds. Proclaim what, you could, what nothing else can proclaim. Proclaim the wisdom. Proclaim the truth. Proclaim the grace refined through your years. Are we depressed? If we are, then it's because we think we're powerless. But God's given us the power to turn that around. Because his grace has appeared to all of us. Not to give us the power of a he-man, but to give us the power of a servant who hung naked upon a cross and wasn't afraid to show his weakness. And don't be afraid to let that weakness refine that power as you get older. And don't let the devil lie to you and say you're forsaken and neglected and forgotten and you don't have a role anymore. Your role is pure, more valuable and precious than it's ever been. Does somebody have faith getting through to you? Is God's word overcoming some barriers and sharpening some blurry things and bringing resolution in both sense of the word? As you spoke to me, Daniel said, I was strengthened. Can we be strengthened? Are we strengthened? God doesn't want you to be a functionary in his kingdom. He wants you to be a son.